The day started like any other. Gerald Bennett Wolf got ready for work. It was May of 1976 on a warm day in Washington, D.C. Wolf did his usual commute to the IRS building on Constitution Ave, where he worked as a typist in the tax division of the agency. That day after work, he had a plan to meet a buddy of his. But it wasn't at a bar, though. No. In fact, that evening, they met at a federal courthouse near the IRS building. Wolf was helping his buddy do some legal research late at night at the library on the third floor of the courthouse. I guess people sometimes study late, but to me, that seemed like a pretty weird time to go to the library. And the night librarian noticed that too. So when the pair showed up a second time late at night, the librarian thought it was more than just a little weird. He found them wandering around the hall, holding documents. He knew they used the copy machine. Something seemed a little bit off, so he checked the names on the sign-in sheet. Jay Foster and Hulk. And then, in the book just a week earlier, in the same handwriting was Jay Foster and Jay Wolf. Who were these guys? Just to be safe, the night librarian alerted the U.S. Attorney's Office. They had their offices on the same floor. They told him to give him a call again if the guys came back, and they'd alert the FBI. On June 11, the pair came back for a third time. The librarian let them in, gave them access, and then went to his desk to make the call. They're back, he said. Wolf and his buddy were on the third floor of the courthouse when two FBI agents arrived. Turns out, Wolf's friend had a fake IRS ID card on him with a false name. Wolf had a fake ID with a false name for himself as well, even though he was an IRS employee. They were allowed to leave that night, but this scene was the beginning of a major discovery. Because at the same time that Wolf and his pal got caught, the U.S. government became aware of the reality that multiple agencies, including the IRS, were the target of an elaborate operation that had put them in the crosshairs of a formidable opponent, the Church of Scientology, a self-described religious organization that in the 70s was desperate for a tax-exempt status, something that the IRS had refused and refused again. But here's the thing. The Church of Scientology, they don't give up so easy, and they weren't having it. The U.S. government was about to find out what links the church would go to to get what they want. I'm Alzo Slade, and this is Cheat, the show where we ask the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? This week, Operation Snow White, revisiting the long-standing feud between the Church of Scientology and the IRS. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Mr. Hubbard, many millions of words have been said and written about Scientology. But I think there's still quite a lot of doubt in many people's minds as to exactly what it is. 
Scientology presents itself as a scientific approach to spiritual enlightenment, but there's no actual science involved in it. Mainly, it's a journey through the mind of L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, and that mind is highly inventive. This is journalist and author Lawrence Wright. Wright spent years delving into the world of Scientology, which resulted in the book Going Clear. When I think about Scientology, I mainly think about all the celebrities that are associated with it, like Tom Cruise. I've been uh, Scientology for over 30 years, yeah. and um, it's something that, as, as you know, without it, uh, I wouldn't be where I am. Yeah. You know? So it's a beautiful religion, and I'm very proud. And John Travolta. You know, 40 years for me, I've been part, and I've loved every minute of it. My family has done so well with it. Elizabeth Moss. What is I mean, it about that... it? What is, when I talk to people that have that faith, yeah. they always say, yeah, I can, I'm a better me yeah. because of it. I think that's, that's, a, that's a good way of saying it because there's so much focus on the, I guess, empowerment and, and sort yeah. of respecting yourself and, and yourself as an individual. Scientology was founded by L. Ron Hubbard, who was first a science fiction writer. In his 20s and 30s, he authored over 250 books, Think Dime Store Novels. And he hit a lot of genres. Sci-fi epics, pirates, westerns. He has the Guinness Book of World Records for the number of books published. Very curious, folksy, corny, but also cunning, deceptive, and delusional. And all of those qualities are a feature of the Church of Scientology. In 1950, Hubbard's writing career took a turn to the human mind. He published Dianetics a book of his pseudoscientific theories that would inform Scientology practices and beliefs. Hubbard developed a number of procedures and technologies to help people free themselves from their pain through a process called auditing. And if you were able to go through the audits, you'd reach a state called clear, which is the ultimate state. And so he set up this organization. It was supposed to be science. But the world of psychotherapy, they didn't buy it. The American Psychological Association told therapists to avoid Dianetics. A board of medical examiners in New Jersey, where he was from, tried to bring suits against Hubbard for phony medicinal practices. But Hubbard kept going. He was already selling books about Scientology, developing technologies, forming associations, and in the 1950s, Scientology was rebranded as a religion. And this is where our story really begins. It became very clear that religion, although he was opposed to it in principle, had real advantages where taxes are concerned. Advantages as in religious organizations don't have to pay taxes. And so he incorporated the church as a tax-free religious entity. And that's what alerted the IRS. When Scientology opened their first church in 1954, it had that sweet tax-exempt status, and Hubbard wanted to take advantage of it, especially as the church assets continued to grow. Money was coming in because that auditing process that Hubbard developed, the one that helps you become clear, well, it ain't free. No, it costs money. You got to pay to play, as they say. Scientology books were selling as well. Soon, there were Scientology franchises. So basically, 
there was a lot of money moving around, and Hubbard wanted to protect it. A small portion of his different groups that he had established had gotten a tax exemption in California. So he transferred many of the church's assets to that and sought to expand the uh, church's exemption, which the IRS eventually denied. That sweet, sweet tax-exempt life lasted until 1967. It was 13 years of tax-free bliss. And then the IRS revoked its exemption. The reason? They saw it as a commercial enterprise, and it was. The IRS found that the church was engaged in activities that generated a profit for an individual's benefit. The individual here being L. Ron Hubbard. One of the reasons the church got into trouble with the IRS is the question of inurement. When an individual benefits from a charity, and let's say that you are pastor of a church and, you know, the tithing comes in and you stick that in your pocket. Well, that's inurement. And the IRS found that that was happening with Hubbard. And, uh, you know, millions of dollars. They, church members were tithing to him. It was all sort of shady. Hubbard's name was on most of the Scientology bank accounts and trust funds, which received a lot of money. He got royalty payments for his books, and he was directly paid by Scientology branches for the work he did to develop the religion. He incorporated a for-profit company, and basically, it was all a confusing mess. The accounting in the church was, you know, uh, indecipherable and really confounded the IRS. There was no clear oversight or accountability, and there was something else, too. You have to go kind of deep in the weeds to understand the theology behind this. The IRS mentioned something about Scientology's, quote, scripturally-based hostility to taxation. The church's greatest secret were what were called the OT3 materials. And in Hubbard's description of the origins of the universe, more or less, 75 million years ago, there was this galactic overlord named Xenu. And he was evil, and he, but he was also facing a problem of overpopulation. So he brought in his citizens, who were called Thetans, for tax audits, or at least that was ostensibly for tax audits. And so what he did with them is he froze them and put them in rocket ships and sent them to the prison planet called Tijiak, otherwise known as Earth. And dropped them off in a volcano and exploded them with a hydrogen bomb. And these disembodied spirits are what caused all the troubles that haunt humankind. Yeah, it sounds a little like a sci-fi novel to me. But as part of their religious beliefs, because of Xenu, Scientologists didn't want to pay taxes. When the IRS revoked the tax status of Scientology, the church simply stopped paying taxes. <laughs> and of course, that didn't sit well with the IRS. They were like, yo, you guys can say you're a religion, but all the money here seems to just be going to one person in order to line his pockets, which sort of defeats the whole purpose of a religious organization. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a standoff between the IRS and the Church of Scientology with potentially very bad consequences for the church. Over time, 
they acquired more than a billion dollars in tax liabilities. The Church of Scientology found itself in a precarious financial position. You don't say. This was an existential moment for the church. You know, if they didn't get a tax exemption, and the moreover one that forgave all their non-payment and all the fines that they had incurred, they would go out of business. As they say, desperate times call for desperate measures. And the Church of Scientology, they were pretty desperate. So desperate that it seemed like there was no limit to what they would do. Find out after the break. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. In the 1950s, L. Ron Hubbard issued a ruling called the Fair Game Doctrine. This ruling would define how Scientology dealt with its critics. Fair Game is an order that L. Ron Hubbard wrote about dealing with enemies. And anyone that is opposed to Scientology has to be dealt with harshly. And that can mean harassment up to being destroyed, uh, which is open to interpretation. They say open to interpretation. Well, in fact, the homes, property, places, and abodes of these critics were outside the protection of Scientology ethics, a.k.a. they were fair game. And importantly, Scientologists following the fair game rule wouldn't be punished by the church. He later revoked that order because it was, you know, so inflammatory that it caught the attention of the Justice Department. So Hubbard rescinded it, but the idea inside the church was he didn't really rescind it. There's a codicil or an understanding that the fair game was still in effect. By the 1960s, the church started taking an active stance against its critics. I mean, everything from lawsuits to threats to harassment. But one of the church's primary critics was not an individual. It was an agency, the IRS. This feeling of being an enemy was mutual. The IRS felt that the church was an enemy. And so there was a, a high level of hostility on both sides. Man, you do not want the IRS as an enemy. This is a huge, massive government institution. So for the church, to take the IRS down would require a plan of epic proportions, something Hubbard 
with that imaginative mind of his, was actually capable of devising. Hubbard wrote another order called Operation Snow White, and it was to eliminate the enemies, foremost among them the IRS, but many other different agencies. The operation would eventually be refined into a series of orders. One was Scientologist Guardian Order 1361, which would be carried out by his third wife, Mary Sue, a powerful person in the church. Mary Sue Hubbard, this tall, red-headed Texan, a tough lady, ran an or- a group inside Scientology called the Guardian's Office. It was a vast secret police that the Scientology employed against its enemies. So here's what Operation Snow White proposed. Scientologists would infiltrate government departments and agencies in order to recover documents that contained quote-unquote false information about Scientology. Employing about 5,000 Scientologists to infiltrate 136 government offices and departments, including the Food and Drug Administration, the FBI, the Justice Department, and certainly the IRS. What in the bootleg pseudo-cool mutiny of federal government is going on here? So this is the plan. Scientologists would go undercover and get jobs in the U.S. government. The goal? Get their hands on documents related to the church and suss out valuable information for Hubbard. I should add, it wasn't just the U.S. government that they infiltrated, foreign governments as well. Police agencies like Interpol, newspapers, the Washington Post. I mean, they cast their net very wide, and the whole idea was to defend the reputation of Scientology and to handicap any efforts to bridle it. In 1974, when the order was issued, the church started figuring out how to place Scientologists in these roles. And one Scientologist in particular got the ideal placement, typist in the tax division at the IRS's national office in D.C. His name? Gerald Bennett Wolfe. Wolf landed his job at the IRS in November of 1974. Just a few days into the job, other Scientologists in D.C. showed him what he needed to do. They came to the IRS building. They already knew the names of people involved with matters related to the church. So now they could get into their offices and their filing cabinets. After that, it was easy. They photocopied the papers, sent it to the Scientology headquarters, and returned the file. That's how information would be passed. They also took other steps. They planted wiretapping equipment inside the office of the IRS chief chief counsel. They broke into the IRS offices in Washington and there got into the credentials room and made themselves credentials. And then they had free access to go through the files, burglarize the place. For years, Wolf copied sensitive IRS documents to send to the Church of Scientology. Over the course of his placement, he sent tens of thousands of government documents to the church, enough documents to form a stack that was 10 feet high. But towards the end of 1975, Hubbard got concerned about the government's involvement in a Scientology lawsuit with Interpol. Wolf received a new order to go check out offices of a prosecutor looking into this case. 
They were in the United States courthouse in D.C., and they were on the third floor, the same floor as a library. That's when Wolf started to meet another Scientologist there to go to the library. But after signing in at the library, they would sneak into the prosecutor's office and photocopy information. And that's what led to the fateful night of June 11, 1976, when FBI agents arrived at the U.S. courthouse and confiscated the two men's fake credentials. Once that happened, the whole scale of Operation Snow White began to reveal itself. And you can imagine the government's reaction. (laughs) They've been spied upon for years in their highest, most secure organizations. You know, all of their secrecy had been compromised. And so, yes, the, the government was ready to do something about it. What was the government ready to do? Well... Find out after the break. The U.S. government acted swiftly. In 1977, there was a a raid, not just in Hollywood and the international headquarters, but in Washington and elsewhere, other Scientology offices. Over 100 FBI agents with buzz saws, hammers, and all sorts of other tools to break down doors arrived to search the premises of various Scientology locations. They had a warrant, and they weren't going anywhere, especially not without stolen government materials. It was the biggest raid in FBI history. Agents had to run through the corridors to seize the files from the hands of the clerical staff who were trying to destroy all the evidence. And they found wiretapping equipment, they found lock-picking kits, they found guns, and tens of thousands of files which they loaded into trucks for evidence. Catching Wolf was for sure one catalyst for the raid. He was arrested shortly after the FBI agents found him in the law library in June. But also, the FBI had already received information about a potentially massive operation being carried out by the church. They started to get the pieces they needed to take it down. The same year Wolf was caught, He pleaded guilty to forging credentials before a grand jury and was sentenced to probation and community service. He refused to say anything about Operation Snow White. But his buddy, the other Scientologist the FBI caught, he told the real story. He fled after being caught in the library, and then a few years later, he wanted to come clean. The church, they tried to keep him quiet by holding him captive in California for a few years until he was able to escape. He told the government everything he knew about Operation Snow White in exchange for a plea deal. Between this informant and the documents seized in the raids, the government had enough information to act again in 1978. The Justice Department issued 11 indictments for senior members of the church, and Mary Sue Hubbard foremost among them. For conspiracy to steal government documents, for theft, and for obstructing justice. L. Ron Hubbard himself was listed as an unindicted co-conspirator, but he was clearly in legal jeopardy. So at that point, he decided to implement what was called Operation All Clear. In other words, he was going to hide out until the coast was clear, and the coast never was clear for him again. So for the next six years, he disappeared. While Hubbard went into hiding, The church fought the case ferociously. They attempted to have the judge removed, 
They even tried to subpoena federal agents. Basically, they wanted to make a legal mess. In the end, they agreed to plea deals instead of going to trial. And in December of 1979, the 11 Scientologists received prison sentences that ranged from six months to five years. One was fined $1,000, a few paid 10 times that. And as for Wolf, he received a five-year prison sentence and paid $10,000. This was a huge blight on Scientology. You know, the audacity, the criminality of it was shocking. I think until that point, people regarded Scientology tolerantly and maybe with some amusement. Americans didn't see it as a terrible threat, mostly. But suddenly, you know, this underground operation of extreme criminality really, you know, was a black eye for the church, more than a black eye. It was a a grave blow, and it, it should have been mortal. You think this would be the end of the Church of Scientology, or at least the end of their quest to get tax exempt status? Hmm. Not quite. Even after the discovery, the raid, the trial, the sentencing, even after all of that, the church continued to pursue tax-exempt status. But this time, they took the IRS to the courts. They began to sue the IRS. More than 2,500 lawsuits against the IRS in general and particular agents, coupled with innumerable freedom of information requests and so on, and uh, harassment of individual IRS agents. And at the same time, the IRS was trying to put the noose around the Church of Scientology. It seemed like this would go on forever. The endless legal battles, the legal fees, the paperwork. The church, they also hired private investigators to follow IRS employees and get dirt on them. They followed individual agents and found out, you know, who drank too much and who might be sleeping around. And they would publish that information in their magazine, which they passed out on the steps of the IRS. The level of harassment was unbelievable. And the IRS was kneecapped. You know, it it couldn't afford to defend itself. This is the IRS, you know, the, the gall that it takes to wage war on an agency ostensibly as powerful as the IRS is just hard to imagine. I think we can all agree that most of us probably don't necessarily like the IRS, and the church knows that. And they capitalize on the public's general anti-IRS sentiment. They formed a coalition of former IRS employees, calling them the whistleblowers and giving them a platform to speak out about agency abuses. They ran ads featuring celebrities who had been tax audited, like Lucille Ball, even if they weren't Scientologists. They were pretty much relentless. And then there would come a meeting that would change everything. One meeting that would somehow bring an end to a few that had raised on for decades. It was 1991. L. Ron Hubbard had died. The church had a new leader, David Miscavige. I look at David Miscavige as the Brigham Young of Scientology. After the death of the charismatic leader, you know, who's going to keep the operation alive? And that was David Miscavige. He was 19 years old 
when Hubbard appointed him action chief, which is a very powerful post inside the clergy. He was 25 when Hubbard died, and he essentially seized the reins. It was a tough time for the church. There was no sign of the IRS changing its mind, and it was absolutely critical for the church that they get a tax-exempt status. It was a billion dollars away from being able to survive. At this point, they need more than just a tax-exempt status. They would need a way to get rid of all the penalties and back pay that they had accumulated. David Miscavige was handling this along with Marty Rathbun, who was his chief assistant and henchman. And they were meeting with a Scientology tax lawyer in Washington at the Bombay Club. And Miscavige said, let's just go over there. And, uh, you know, let's go settle this once and for all. And by that, he meant go over to the IRS. Yeah. After everything that had transpired, Ms. Cavish just decided, you know what, let's just see if we can walk on over there and talk this thing out. So he and Marty went over to 1111 Constitution Avenue and said, we're from the Church of Scientology and we'd like to talk to the director. And, you know, you can imagine <laughs> the surprise. The commissioner of the IRS at the time was Fred Goldberg. Some of his aides came down and heard them out. And so um, a few hours later, they got a call in their hotel room saying the director would meet them the next week. We did meet with the commissioner. And as the saying goes, the rest is history. You might be thinking what I'm thinking. Why and how would the commissioner even agree to meet with anybody from the church after everything that had happened? I talked to Marty Rathbun about that, who was present in most of those meetings. And, you know, the main concern that Fred had was that the IRS is handicapped now in all of its operations. And also, individual agents are feeling persecuted. And he wanted to have put a stop to that. The IRS was exhausted at this point. And Ms. Cavage promised that it all could end if they give the church what they wanted. And it worked. The church would not only be given a tax-exempt status, it, would, it was awarded the ability to determine what parts of the church were tax-exempt. In other words, it just handed him the keys to the car. And, and they owed more than a billion dollars. They paid $12.5 million, which was a tenth of their assets. And yet, they got this get-out-of-jail-free card. And in return, they promised to drop the lawsuits and the harassment of individual agents. And that's it. That was the deal. That was the deal? What do you mean, that was the deal? So, after all of this, the IRS granted the church tax-exempt status in 1993. The $1 billion owed, it was just forgotten and forgiven. David Miscavige announced to a crowd of 10,000 Scientologists at the L.A. Sports Arena. On October the 1st, 1993, at 8.37 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the IRS issued letters recognizing Scientology and every one of its organizations as fully tax-exempt. The war is over! This was a crazy victory for the Church of Scientology. Now, they were legitimized as a religious organization on U.S. soil, and they wanted to make sure 
that the whole world knew it. Part of the deal was Miscavige had this letter that he wrote <laughs> describing the, you know, the, that the U.S.C. Scientology as a tax-exempt organization and would appreciate being treated the same way in other countries. The church, which had been on the brink of potentially shuttering its doors, had emerged from this completely victorious and stronger than ever. They quickly started expanding their operations, their properties, and their assets. Because of the IRS exemption, the church was able to acquire all these real estate properties. And they're one of the biggest landlords in Hollywood, for instance. Here in New York, they have an office in Times Square. In Washington, it's DuPont Circle. In Nashville, it's Music Row. You know, they're constantly looking for the choicest properties, which are tax-exempt for them, thanks to the IRS. How was the IRS able to revoke the church's tax-exempt status? a determination they held for 25 years. Well, a lot of it comes down to how this started. The very strategic decision Hubbard made in 1954 to make Scientology a religion. Imagine that you are a tax accountant or an attorney working for the IRS, and you're sitting around a conference table, and you're trying to decide what is a religion. You know, these are not people that are carved out to, <laughs> to think about those things necessarily in encompassing ways. In many ways, it became a larger question that was pretty tricky to answer. What constituted a religious organization in the United States? Was the IRS really in the position to make decisions about what was religion and what wasn't? The IRS, in this case, proved itself incapable of making that kind of distinction. And Scientology was always making a point to draw parallels to other religions. For instance, God doesn't play a very big role in Scientology. But, you know, there are other religions that have a kind of diminished sense of a deity. There are other religions that worship rocks or icons. And there's certainly other religions where individuals like L. Ron Hubbard are treated as godlike figures. But according to Wright, there's a critical distinction here. The abuses, this is where I get off the wagon. The human rights of abuses inside the Church of Scientology, especially its clergy, the Sea Org, they're called. You know, there's no way to excuse that. Former Scientology members have gone public with allegations that the church is abusive, physically, emotionally, and mentally. There's very little transparency when it comes to church operations, little to no oversight. There's a history of very troubling and unexplained deaths. Add to that a long-documented trail of the extreme lengths the church will go to, the things they'll do to get the kind of protections that allow them to maintain their secrecy and intimidation tactics. There's nothing in history to compare with what Scientology did with the American government, other governments, you know, newspapers and so on. The degree of infiltration was staggering. And the, the laws that they trampled on, breaking and entering, framing people for crimes that they didn't commit, burglarizing files, it's just, you know, staggering. You know, when you look at religion, at least most religions that I'm familiar with, the imperative is to do good and help others. Taxes are supposed to do that, kind of. 
Now, we can argue about corrupt politicians and how they take from it, but bracketing that, the Church of Scientology took $1 billion out of the pot that's supposed to help the rest of us. And to me, it would seem that that's counter to basic religious beliefs. Now, let's be honest. Nobody really enjoys paying taxes. You do it because I guess it's the right thing to do and it's the reason we have roads, schools, food safety and all these other things, but nobody really enjoys doing it. But it's part of the social contract that comes from living with other people. And while we're on the topic, you know, other things that run counter to religious beliefs, I can think of a few. How about breaking laws for personal and institutional gain, harassing people, infiltrating the government, intimidating folks, prying into their lives, you know, activities that tend to be more in the um, thou shalt not category. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next time on Cheat. In the last 15 to 20 years, with the rise of online games, cheating has become a business, really. There's a lot of demand, a lot of people want to cheat. Cheat is presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by Julia Doyle. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Megan Dietrich. The original idea for the show was developed by Tom Fuller. Mixing and scoring by Martin Peralta at Output Media. Special thanks to the Sony legal team. Our production coordinators are Jennifer Mystery and Iker Egbatola. <laughs>